Good morning. Um, really grateful to be here with you all this morning. I will introduce myself in, in a few minutes, but maybe um, just to start, want to um, invite all of us, including myself, just to arrive in our bodies and take a few breaths to, um, to just attune to whatever sensation we can find in our physical being. Without a story or any elaboration, but just, so what's here for you as an embodied person right now? It's such a strange blessing to meet, you know, across physical space, but in temporal time and in bodies, but sort of not. <laughs> so for me, it's really helpful to remember I have one and appreciate it. And also if you, um, you know, you may not want to, but if you would like, um, if you can unmute for a second and just say something so we can hear the voices of, of everyone present who would like to say something. Maybe even just... <laughs> it's Hi, Sean. <laughs> Hi. 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 Thank you very much. Thanks for doing that. It's nice to it just for a second you show up in a bigger box, you know. <laughs> so my name is Sarah and um, I use the pronouns she and her and my Dharma name is Dojin Myoan, which means um, path of love or path of relationship inconceivable gratitude. And that name was given to me by um, Kanjin Galen Godwin, who uh, I ordained with and did transmission with, who I think was, was visiting Ancestral Heart recently and is my teacher. And um, I, uh, you know, I could, I, I, I hope to offer something this morning that is maybe enjoyable, but most importantly, supportive for your life and practice, for our life and practice together. And as a springboard for, for an inquiry to take up together. And even with my heartfelt intention, you know, to offer something supportive, I, it's really clear to me that because of the different ways I'm conditioned, and some of those identities are as a female embodied person, as a white racialized person, um, as a person in a straight relationship, but I'm not totally more a queer person in a straight relationship, um, as a parent, as an as a person growing up in the United States, all these things like they inform me, but they also limit my view, you know. So um, even with the intention to offer something helpful, I may not or I may even cause harm. And um, if that's the case, I just wanna welcome your feedback and also acknowledge that um, it's hard to give that feedback. So it's only if you have the time and energy for it, something happens. But I do, um, as a teacher, I do wanna know when that happens. 
And I, uh, and I expect that to happen because I'm human <laughs> and I'm conditioned and I'm limited. So I'm not shocked when people are like, you know, you wanted to say something good there, but it hurt me. I'm usually like, oh, okay, I want to know. Please tell me. And I want to talk about something that's tender, actually, which is I'd like to talk about grief and its relationship to practice. And, um, and I want to go slow because I know that grief is not comfortable um, for many people. And I, and I, you know, I, I've given some thought to this, <laughs> so I'm not going to dig around in a painful way and grief. I just want to share with you um, what's alive for me lately about the role that grief and grieving plays um, in developing in wisdom as human beings. And also, and as a, as a foundational ground to stand on um, to respond skillfully to suffering in the world and in ourselves, although those aren't separate things, you know. Um, in my experience, grief is um, when it's supported, and that's a key thing, because it's not often very supported. But when, when we can support one another in grieving, our capacity grows to love and, and to really be mature human beings and to respond. And, um, and, and as I mentioned, I think there's a lot of losses that are unsupported or a lot of grieving that's unsupported. There's a lot of losses that are unacknowledged actually, both maybe to ourselves and, and with others. And so there's a lot of unresolved grief in the world in my experience. I'll, and I include myself in that. There's some losses I have that I, I'm still working on. And, and I also think it's extremely tender because um, there's, we're in a time of such immense losses. And I, the pandemic is a part of that, but it's, it's a small part of that. You know. um, to be alive in the world right now is to be witnessing a tremendous amount of loss of, of life, and, but of ways of being and of um, ecological balance. And, and even some of the, what I would say are positive losses, like in dominant culture in the United States, losing or being liberated from the delusion of uh, equal, quote, equality that has never been so in this country. You know, there's, but it's effortful um, on a mass scale to let go of delusion. And, and truthfully, even when we're letting go of delusion, even when that's the thing we're losing, I think there's grieving to be acknowledged and done, even when we want the freedom that's coming. So I want to say what I, what I mean by grief um, is, is, I think it's a very innate human capacity to integrate loss. And in terms of practice, uh, what grief allows us to grow in is um, an alignment and an intimacy with impermanence. And, you know, I think for me in, in the 
impermanence is just reality. <laughs> so, so one of the things grief allows us to do is integrate a, a deeper relationship with reality, the way that everything is changing and fleeting and uh, not fixed and not permanent. And it also, it comes from the, the root of reality of how we're all connected. You know, we say often in Zen people, in, in, when people translate it, they say emptiness. That, but I feel like that doctrine is really pointing to the not separateness, empty of separated being. You know, so it's really connectedness. And these two pieces of, of impermanence and um, connection are the root of the first fold of, of the Eightfold Path, you know, of a, the skillful view of the world is to understand we are connected and we are impermanent and all things are. So grief is a, a path that helps us walk there and stay close and intimate with that. And um, in my experience, so I, my, my life has offered a lot of opportunities for grieving. I've had a number of pretty intense losses. And, um, and I, I think also it's grief is just our, our human way. You know, there's things are always changing. We're always having to adapt to things shifting. In the, in the cultures I grew up in, um, grief was taught and when i think about it now i'm like it was it was pretty anemic way it was like grief was happened when someone you love died it was sad and formal and you could be sad that was pretty much the only like as far as i could tell it was the only acceptable emotion and not too loudly and not too long <laughs> that was my introduction to grieving. Um, I didn't hear anybody say that grief often caused a lot of confusion, even though I experienced it that way. Like one of my first losses in my life was my grandfather's death. And I remember feeling like I'm supposed to feel sad. And, um, and I think I, I did, I felt sad somewhere in there, but I felt a lot of other things. Um, confusion being one of them. Uh, the confusion was there because I felt some relief because my grandfather had been suffering and I didn't know what to make of that. So I, I can say from my experience early on, I, I wasn't given a message that grief was um, mine or an innate human capacity or just, you know, just one of the things that is being human. I had a feeling that like it was confusing and I didn't know how it was supposed to work and um, you know, and <laughs> I remember like, I liked, I liked the deli platters that would happen after funerals, like the family would gather and there'd be deli platters. And then I'd feel really bad that I had any positive feeling. I also remember I liked gladiolas, the, the flowers. And I was, I remember being at a funeral and saying to my mom, like, those are really pretty. We should grow those. And she's like, no, those are just for funerals. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> are those bad flowers? You know, are they, are they death flowers? They're sadness flowers. Okay. You know, and just a lot of that, you know, like just confusion. I want to, um, with you, to open to talking about grief that goes beyond the loss of a loved one. 
Um, and, and actually maybe, maybe most importantly, the griefs that are like in our everyday lives, in our moment by moment. But I do want to start with talking about grief in, in that way of grieving when a loved one is lost because it, it's familiar. It's maybe what we often think of. I work also as a, as a grief counselor. Um, and so far, people haven't come to me for a more abstract loss. Although a couple of people have talked about it. I was like, yeah, no, really, <laughs> grief is wide. You know, mostly I talk to people who have uh, loved ones who have died. And then, and then often one part of the healing process is to realize that that's not the only way they know grieving, you know, or that we know grieving, that there's all sorts of losses and that they all get activated or, and conversely, even small losses activate our, our big and more obvious ones. Um, but I'll start there because I, lately I've been witnessing something that, that has been so profound to me, which is there are several people in my life, um, both in my life as a member of the community and as a friend, and in my life as a grief counselor who are they are dealing with the grief process after the death of a young adult child, which is a, so painful of a loss. It's such a difficult human experience. Every, every one of these losses is tragic, like beyond, really almost beyond holding. And what I've been uh, seeing with each person, so there's three people in my life with that situation right now is um, what struck me so deeply is how each person um, has turned toward their grief with, with like this totally innate knowing of how to deal with this. And maybe because it's so bad, you know, <laughs> that something deep in them. And then there's a range. Uh, uh, several of them have a feeling of like, I know how to do this. I, I'm gonna do this. This is like, I'm a parent. This is how I love my child. I'm doing it. So there's like a confidence to, to a feeling of like, I'm not doing this right. I don't know how to do this. Even though they're, they're doing something amazing in the way that they're turning toward their grief. Yeah, and that, and that I think what I wanna, as a, as a person who um, is privileged to, to often uh, accompany people in their grief, one of the things I would like to support in the world is more and more confidence that we do know how to grieve and that actually we don't need someone to tell us and, um, and, and we hold each other in it. You know, this in Sangha, I really, it's my heart, it's my heart's <laughs> deep intention that we grow um, holding one another in grieving and the capacity for that. And I was recently talking to one of, of these folks and, and saying, um, well, you know, one thing you can do in terms of meeting the fullness of this loss of your child is just, just open to the fact that you, there's a part of you who wants to say, I don't want this. And they very sweetly said, oh, okay, I don't get how that's Buddhist. <laughs> And I kind of chuckled, actually. I was like, oh, I said, well, I don't know. I don't know how it's Buddhist, but here's how I think it's Buddhist, <laughs> is that it's the truth. 
and and that's what I understand practice to be about like you know the truth like living in reality the reality is that there's a big part of you there's a big part of any parent who has a child who dies who will forever be like no I don't want this I didn't expect this and I don't want it and I know it happened but I know <laughs> and not not like denial like that I think would not be supported by our not like it didn't happen but like I don't want it even knowing that it happened and and then we talked about I'm going to make a gesture so if people don't if can't see me so that like with my with the left hand like ho, ho, making a lot of space for that no but at the same time with with the other hand with the other part of us making a big space for and this is what happened also and that these um it's not like we pick one up and put one down to to grieve in a healthy way is to hold both and then like all the stuff in between the no and the yes. And as we were talking about that, I could feel it in my own body that um, heart, the heartache that I'm sure some of you know, <laughs> I'm sure most of you know, maybe all of us know, the heartache, there's a physical pain that comes with grieving. What if we understand it to be what happens when the heart is stretching to, to a capacity it hasn't known before to include this complexity of like, I don't want this, this is so, and then all the stuff in between. When I was picturing that yesterday, I was thinking about what it felt like to uh, give birth. <laughs> it, for me, it hurt <laughs> like people are like oh it could be ecstatic i'm like well that's nice for you um it was pretty painful you know these tendons are moving in ways that they never ever have before and it's just and i feel like grief is just like that actually the heart is expanding to a size and, and a breadth that it never has had before and um and it's changing, the heart is changing with that. When, when I think again about the conditioning that I received around grieving, it's like, oh yeah, you can get, you get a, I don't know, not even a week off. I've never seen it. I didn't grow up seeing people have bereavement uh, time off from work or something. So there's a funeral, there's a day or two, get back at it. You know, so the idea that like, maybe that heart had to expand, but get it back to the regular size and move forward, you know, versus um, my experience is that a healthy grief process is the heart expands, it's a painful process, and it stays big because um, it's changed by grief. There's a ceremony in Zen, and I, I, I know you have a figure at Ancestral Heart, and, um, and I'm sure folks have their own relationships to Jizo Bodhisattva. Do people know Jizo? I have a bunch of them on my altar. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, Jizo Bodhisattva is um, that that name. That's the Japanese rendering, I, and I am probably not saying it correctly. In Chinese, the it's Ditsang, and in uh, Sanskrit, it's Kshita Garba. 
and and also and the the um, the name of Jizo Bodhisattvas or Jizo is uh, there are ceremonies that um, where we invoke the um, the qualities of Jizo Bodhisattva, which are fearlessness and uh, great capacity, and they're reaching across to the realms of loved ones who have died. So Jizo can, when we make an offering to Jizo, Jizo can bring that across and give nourishment. So from our hearts and our making something in the physical plane, we offer something over and Jizo has that bridging capacity to bring it to beings that we love who are not embodied and make it a nourishment for them. And that name means Jizo or Ditsong or Kishita Garba means earth womb, W-O-M-B. So earth womb or earth storehouse. And I feel, I feel that's that image too, when I think about the heart growing, <laughs> aching. You know, that, that Jizo, one of the, what we call on when we're calling on Jizo is a capacity as wide as the earth to hold our heartache. And so we get wide internally and we get wide um, understanding that it's not just sorrow that we feel when there's loss, that there's all this other stuff. And that, and that holding all of that um, while it's painful um, puts us in more right alignment with the truth, not only of the loss that we've had, but of who and what we are. And now, and you know, as I have grown, I understand, like, I understand why the cultures I grew up in were grief averse is because people don't want to acknowledge that we're mortal <laughs> ourselves, you know, let alone the, the ones we care about. And, and to it for in order to grieve, we have to do that. We can't, we can't acknowledge impermanence in the world if we can't acknowledge it in ourselves, And it's, it's frightening. It's, you know, we need, and we need to open to the scariness, right? Like, and the no, I don't want this in order to also open to the yes, this is how it is. And I think when we are supported or my experiences, when we're supported to do that as human beings, uh, that, that, gives us the possibility to open to the complexity, not just internally, but the complexity around us and the complexity of what it means to be alive. Um, so that when we're responding to the world, we can tolerate a complexity. You know, when someone's like, this is a problem, here's the answer. It, you know, if we've had enough grief, <laughs> we will be like, oh, that might be an answer or that maybe that's a part of the answer, <laughs> you know, but there's no such thing as the answer or the right way um, because that complexity is, is built in and, and grows in us. And, and it goes right along with our capacity to love. I have a couple of things I want to share in the first one is a podcast um, 
that I find really extraordinary. And I just want to kind of share in the world so that people know it exists. It's made by this young couple um, whose daughter, their, whose oldest daughter died uh, in, in birth. So she died as she's being born. There were complications in the birth. And what they decided to do was to make a podcast about their grief process. It's quite extraordinary. Um, there, um, and you know, this, I don't recommend that this is something everyone does. They were already folks who I think are, um, used to, they're, they're both um, really creative artists and, and musicians, and they were already used to maybe being vulnerable in public, but it's amazing gift. And they talk about their realization of like, oh, grief is love. And it's really beautiful. Um, I don't even know these folks, but I really love them. <laughs> I feel so much tenderness because of how vulnerably they share themselves. And um, they recently, they had a, another child subsequently. So they had their second daughter. And I love it. They, they talk about their children. So they talk about both of their children and their daughters. Um, and they recently had their daughter who died second birthday and you could see, cause I now I don't, I'm not on Instagram often, but I do look at Instagram basically <laughs> in part to see folks like this, like a whole bunch of people came together for the, for the birthday celebration of their oldest child who is not living. And for me as a grief counselor and as a parent who has lost a, a child as an infant, this is pretty encouraging. This is like, this is societal, this is shifting cultural reality that, and they had a birthday cake and they had balloons and they were, you know, and they, and, and it's like, wow, they had a bunch of people there. In our family, we celebrate our daughter who died's birthday, but we do it very privately. It's pretty white. <laughs> Actually, I'm just going to acknowledge, I see my white conditioning there. And also my extended family, some of them are like, we don't really understand that. We don't understand why you're having a birthday cake for your daughter who died. Some people get it. I have friends who have lost children who get it. But I was really like, yes, these folks have a whole community. So I offer that, um, that you could pass on or listen to yourself. And yesterday I had this extraordinary, Charlie and I had this extraordinary experience. We had lunch with, um, I, I mean, I it's hyperbole, but really, um, she is my favorite Buddhist scholar, uh, Paula Arai. People, do people know Paula Arai's work? She's an amazing Buddhist scholar. Um, she, she wrote the book, uh, Bringing Zen Home. She studied, um, she, she, Paula is, uh, her mother is Japanese yeah, and her father's American. I think. And she went to Japan and studied um, women, women's practices of uh, ritual and ceremony of Zen in the home. And, that, and this thread, she studied basically this thread of, of Zen ceremony that women have held. And that's much more like uh, not in temples and not held by men, but held by women um, in householder places. Um, she also uh, wrote this book or, or helped create this book. It's called Painting Enlightenment. So if nothing else, if I just tell you about this book, <laughs> I'll feel like, okay, I've offered something supportive. <laughs> this book is extraordinarily beautiful. And, and Paula writes commentaries to paintings that are made by um, 
a man named uh, Iwasaki Suneo. And I, I remember reading about his life, but I'm not remembering the details, so I don't want to say it incorrectly. He makes paintings, and um, so like you can see here, it's the Heart Sutra are the characters. And he makes these different paintings where, oh, here, I'll put a link for, because you can see some of the images here. Um, the the Heart Sutra characters are woven into the images. And they're really beautiful images. Oh, wait, I took out my, oops. I like this one. I love this one. This is lightning, but it's made up of characters and it's the Heart Sutra. They're, they're profoundly beautiful. So we, we had lunch with, with Paula and her partner and her partner was saying that she hears from people all over the world who are talk about how this book has changed them. Here's another one where it's DNA strands made up of the Heart Sutra. Sorry, I'm not gonna get too distracted here. <laughs> I'll get back on track. Um, but I want to show you this one that, so as we were talking yesterday, she said that she was giving a talk about this talk. She said at Stanford Media Brown and, and there was a big screen behind her of the image. And she was, so she was giving an official academic talk and she, and she was looking at the image behind her and it was so big. And this is the image. This is Kuan Yin. Uh, I'm not going to do it justice here, but it's Kuan Yin uh, pouring dew. Can you see that? And then I'll show you the detail. She's pouring from her vase uh, uh, dew, and it's it's going in among these water babies, so which are children who are unborn. They're in little bubbles. And the Heart Sutra is this line, this is the detail of it, that goes down to the water babies. But as she looked on it on that giant screen for the first time, she realized the Heart Sutra runs up. The characters actually like, so here's the image, but if you turn it this way, you can read the characters. <laughs> Sorry, this is an awkward visual. I wish I had, <laughs> I only heard about it yesterday, so I didn't have time to do a, a screen share, but the, the wisdom of the Heart Sutra is running up from the water babies, from the ones who uh, never fully made it into the embodied world, up into Kuan Yin. And she was really like, yeah. <laughs> like we both got really excited about that realization. Normally the images of Kuan Yin, you know, offering her compassion, but this is like an image in a way of that her compassion comes from the the, you know, what maybe is usually seen as the tragedy of a loss of a child. It's really, yeah, that book is full of tremendous teachings like that. So maybe the encouragement I most want to offer is that, is that we get wide about grief and about loss. And that we don't shut off our experiences of it, but instead we support one another 
in um, almost like making a discipline of, of being attuned to and allowing and supporting feeling the losses that we feel. And, and letting ourselves be impacted and letting ourselves be changed. Even, you know, I can name as a parent, one of the realizations I had as a parent that even when the loss is wanted, you know, like even when it's a liberating loss or what if with a child, when they grow, they change so rapidly, it's quite alarming <laughs> for parents. Like, ah, like, what are you doing? Like, why does my nine-year-old son have feet the same size as mine? Like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for his foot to be that big, you know? And somewhere along the way, I realized with my kids, like, oh, I have to, like, uh, I am grieving the tiny foot. And I want the foot to get bigger. You know, I don't want to stunt them. But that actually, I have to let in that there is a, there is, I'm excited that they're growing, but I'm not just excited. It's more complicated than that. I also am sad. If I'm honest, like, oh, I just said that and I could feel myself like, don't say it, but I am. Like, or there is grief, there's loss. Um, and that we, and that we just let it in you know, and not, and not try to hold it off. As I was working on this talk, um, Charlie, my, my husband and partner said, um, Oh, I just read this quote by Suzuki Roshi and it just was so resonant for me of what I was trying to point to about integrating grief into our life of practice. It was, uh, so Suzuki Roshi was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center and the author of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And in one of his talks, he says, to bring a person back to themselves, directly to their home, this is true love. Incessantly, we are changing. So it is necessary to call ourselves back incessantly. If you don't take care of yourself in this way, you will be lost. When I heard that last part, I felt like, oh yeah, it's orienting. Like it's a compass to, to kind of constantly assess the losses we have and the pain of them and, and like just let them through. I've been I've been thinking, but also feeling like it's my my heart on my heart mind <laughs> is the role of loss in this time, and this started as I was listening to that um, there was a panel that Greg was a part of at Union about um, is it just relationship <laughs> about about I thought. Yeah, just relationship with Earth. And and I've heard Kriti Konko speak here, actually, and then in other places where she talks about the role of grief in responding to ecological disaster. And just the and just the massiveness of loss of life uh, beyond human lives. And and our and the need to grieve. I had been thinking about like that was really with me and living in me. And somebody else, I think it was uh, the person Claudio said something like, you know, because like when we're not grieving, we, we can't dream beyond ourselves. So I was thinking about how limited and small 
minded uh, many of my ancestors and I say that in terms of you know like white colonial settler ancestors you know I I come from people that are were driven by colonial mindsets you know, and um, dominating and extracting mindsets so I was sitting in our backyard and I live in northern California um, there's a few extremely um, regal redwoods in our backyard that I feel privileged to live among. And I, I was feeling, it was almost like, um, no, it wasn't almost like, I was feeling the, the, the ghost forest that should be here, but isn't here. Um, like right where I live, this should be very dense redwood forest had people made different decisions. You know, this should be this like damp, vibrant redwood ecology, redwood forests are like just this amazing eco ecological, very dense life formed places, you know, all the way up into the canopy. There are beings that live like up off the earth, you know, on the redwood trees. And, and I let, and I started to feel the grief of all the decisions that were made that made it so that like my house was here, for example. <laughs> And then a part of my mind was like, no, no, don't go there. It's not the way it was. Don't, don't do that. That's not rational. You know, there was colonialism. There was domination. There was this mindset. This is what happened. So be in the reality. And, you know, it was like trying to dismiss the pain I was feeling. But another part of my brain was like, can we just try feeling this pain? <laughs> and then I opened to it and I felt this I felt the loss of the wisdom that wasn't, if that makes sense. And like the thousands and thousands of decisions that were made based on human supremacy or a feeling of I can take what I want, it's my land or, and I could also feel like right here where my body is located, there were thousands of people for many generations making decisions that were based on other things. So people indigenous, I mean, there, there, were, there are many indigenous folks in the county where I live still, like there's a lot of, uh, there's I think 14 recognized tribes where we live. But there's also, and, and there were myriad practices, so I don't mean to hyper generalize, but there were ways of living before the white colonial folks arrived that were the the governing principles were you know if i'm going to live here can i live in relation to how do i live in relation to the other human beings the other animal beings the tree beings the plant beings the spirit beings the water beings the soil beings and i just have spent some time lately feeling like well what would the world look like if that had been what dominated or not dominated maybe but if that if that way of thinking had been the cascade of decisions had been rooted in that kind of wisdom. And so I offer that just as a, um, as an inquiry, because what happened, because sometimes I think it's, it is dangerous to grieve what wasn't in a way, or it could lead us to a path of not being in reality. But for me, this time when I opened to it, then this discernment arose 
of what what is needed you know what is missing and could i could i participate and could i with one another and with other people get clear about like oh well because this caused so much pain that way of doing things caused so much pain and here's how could we open to it gave me the discernment of what i wanted to open to which is decisions that are based on relationship connection awareness of other beings not human supremacy but of you know elevating the value of all beings so i just offer that because that's in process you know that one of the griefs that we might want to feel and allow ourselves to feel are things that never were so far, but give us the possibility of discerning how we want to move forward and that that's a kind of wisdom. We can grow. <laughs> so thank you very much. I'm just really appreciating being with all of you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.